What is the church to do in this age that we live in? Um, you look at the news this week, and you look at uh, the state of society around us. You look at the tumult in our own government, and the rise and fall of chancellors, and prime ministers, and leaders, and political systems, and economies. And you look at conflict across the world, and you don't want to read the news, do you, at the moment? Or put the news channels on, it's too depressing. There's so much stuff going on and so much tumult and so much trouble. And what is the church to do? What are we to do in this age? Where is Jesus in all of this? What are his plans and his purposes for mankind? Uh, Jenny's got a new uh, phone and um, every morning, it, it goes off, at, and it's got an irksomely cheerful ringtone, and in the ungodly darkest hours, this phone goes off every morning, and she's got it set, so it's so loud, it is so loud, and it is so cheerful, and every morning, she fumbles with her phone. And she says, oh, I've got to turn this volume down. And this has been going on for two months. There's an episode of Frasier, uh, the sitcom, where his brother's phone keeps going off at the most inopportune of times. And in one moment, Frasier, he just snaps. And he walks over to his brother, and he takes the phone out of his hand. It's a flip phone. He folds the phone closed. And he walks to the window, and he lifts the window up. <laughs> and he throws the phone out of the window. Then he closes the window, and then he goes and sits down again. So either Jenny is going to find the volume control for her phone, <laughs> or I'm going to throw it out the window. One of those two things will happen, and I will let you know in the coming weeks which of those, which of those transpires. We've come to a part of Revelation now where the alarm bells are ringing. The alarm bells of heaven. And we've come to a section in Revelation where the trumpets are sounding. Seven trumpets. I feel with this sermon I've got to take my jacket off. <laughs> and... Um, we looked previously at, the, at the, uh, the, the vision of John of heaven and how he saw God holding a scroll which was his plan of judgment and salvation for mankind. And the scroll was taken by the Lamb who opened it and uh, we looked previously at the, at the unsealing of the scroll and the, and the unveiling of God's plan of salvation and, and judgment upon the earth. And how these uh, judgments came and, and in the form of, of warfare and conflict and men killing men and economic hardship and, um, and death. And, and we, come to the, the, we come to the seventh, the opening of the seventh seal as we get to the start of Revelation chapter 8 and there is silence in heaven for half an hour. We read at the start of chapter 8 when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. 
And another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. We see at the, at the start of, of, of chapter 8, we see, we come to the seventh seal is open and we start again on another round of seven, another round of, another vision, if you like, another, not a chronological development, but another sense of, of God's judgment coming upon the earth, of, of God's plan of salvation and judgment coming. And as the seventh seal is open and there's silence in heaven, we see this strange picture of an angel taking a golden censer and scooping up the coals from the altar and hurling it down upon the earth. And, and we, we read that, um, we, we read that, that this is the prayers of the saints, that incense that rises up is the prayer of the saints. And God's judgment is coming upon the earth because of the prayers of the saints of God. And we, we backtrack, if you remember, we backtrack to our question of previous weeks where, where the persecuted church was asking, where the, the complacent church, where, where, where those that had stood before the throne of God, those that had been slain, the martyrs of God, were asking the question, how long, O oh God, until you avenge our blood? How long, O oh God, until you vindicate us upon the earth? And, and this angel comes and takes the censer and responds to the prayers of God's people and hurls down this, these calls upon the earth in response. And the judgment of God, another cycle of the judgment of God comes as the, as the angels stand with seven trumpets and start to sound an alarm, an alarm of God of what is about to happen upon the earth. And it's, it's a response to the, to the prayers of the saints. We, we read in Acts chapter 4 that um, that the, the, the church came in a time of, of great turmoil and tumult and, and change and persecution again and, and the fledging church came and they prayed together and they prayed intensively and as they prayed, uh, we read, the, the place where they prayed was, was shaken. It shook and, and God began to move and the word of God began to spread. And, um, and Chris was reminding us this morning of the, of the great privilege of prayer and, and the great privilege of a praying church to pray down the glory of God upon the streets of, the Plymouth, of, of, of Plymouth and the great power of a, of a praying church. And down throughout the ages, the praying church has affected great things from the early church right down through the ages to today, the power of prayer. And what are we to do in this time of tumult and this time of change and this time of uncertainty, whether it's economic or political or social or cultural, what is the church to do when it seems to be on the back foot? The first thing we must do and always do and continually do is to pray. And that's what, what, the, what these saints did in the, in the vision that John is having of a praying church and praying saints who stand before the throne room of God 
and who pray and ask how long. And now we see this angelic visitation, this response of heaven as the incense of the prayers of God's people rise to heaven. The angel scoops them up and scoops this altar offering up and, and hurls it down upon the earth. And then these angels come and they start to blow these trumpets of judgment, this alarm clock, this sounding of, of warnings. And we have here various kind of a reminiscence, if you like, of the story of Jericho. And you remember the story of Jericho and the people of God marched around Jericho and the command uh, came that, uh, that they were to blow seven trumpets. And then the city walls would fall and collapse. And this city that stood impregnant against the, uh, the people of God, uh, uh, it, it fell, it collapsed as the seven trumpets sounded, the people of God marched around it and, and God's judgment came and, and victory was, was given to the people of Israel. It's also reminiscent as we, as we read of the seven trumpets and as we hear of what happens as each trumpet is sounded. It's, it's reminiscent of the plagues of Israel and, and the plagues of Egypt. If you remember last week, we talked about the blood of the Lamb and how we are protected by the blood of the Lamb. The, the saints that John saw in heaven, uh, they, they were washed, their robes were washed in the blood of the Lamb. And we remembered the story last week of the, uh, of the people of Israel and, and the Passover and how they were to mark their houses with the blood of a Lamb and they were protected from the judgment of God. As, as they were marked and protected and sealed with the blood of the Lamb. And, and the same promise was given to these believers that they would be protected from the judgment of God by the blood of the Lamb. They could stand because they were made right before God. The answer to the question, who can stand under this terrible judgment of God? The answer came was those that are marked, those that are protected, those that are sealed by the blood of the Lamb, protected by the salvation of Jesus Christ. They are the ones that can stand. So the story that we reflected on last week from the Old Testament was the story of the Passover and the story of the, of the lamb and the blood of the lamb. But this week, the re, there's a, a reminiscence, there's a, an echo of the plagues of Egypt that came. Uh, if you remember when Moses went to Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh said, I, 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 will not, I will not let them go. I will not let the people of God go. And, and God's judgment came, and it came in hail, and it came uh, with, the, with the rivers being turned to blood, and it came with uh, the locusts, and it, and it came wave after wave after wave of the judgment of God came upon Egypt. And yet the people would not uh, repent. Pharaoh would not repent. And as we read through these trumpets being sounded, we read of things that sound quite similar. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. And the second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea turned into blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And so on and so on, we read of these four angels blowing their trumpet. Now I think, as I've said throughout, 
as we've looked at Revelation, that there's a great deal of symbolism going on here, a great deal of apocalyptic, a great deal of strong images predicting and showing the strong judgment of God upon mankind that trusts in nature and trusts in political systems and trusts in the economy and trusts in, in humankind, which we call humanism. Trust in the strength of mankind for its own destiny and for its own survival. And we see very quickly, as we saw with COVID, as we've seen with plagues throughout the ages, as we've seen through human disasters, how quickly, how quickly we can lose our sense of security. How quickly we can lose our trust in ourselves and in our idols. The things that take the place of God, the things that we put in place of God and make more important than God, how quickly they can be undermined. How quickly the whole world can be turned upon its head through a war or a conflict or a disease or a plague or a pandemic or an economic downturn. How uncertain all of these things are. And whether we have the four opening of the four seals and the four horses of the apocalypse or whether we have the blowing of the trumpets, we see a sense of the judgment of God upon the earth in response to the prayers of his saints. And we, we see here, and you can interpret these, these symbols, you can interpret that in different ways, but you see ultimately the stool being kicked from under mankind. You see the dependence that we have upon these various things of human strength and, and human systems. We see how quickly they can be gone and how quickly they can be judged and removed. And there is a sense also of an intensification of the judgment of God. In, when the seven seals were opened, we read constantly that a quarter of the earth was affected and a, a quarter of people were affected. And in these judgments of God, as the trumpets are blown, a third of the earth is affected. And then we get to the seven bowls, which is another series of seven judgments in Revelation the whole of the earth is affected. There is a, an intensification, a, a ratcheting up of the, of the judgment of God. And as we come to the end of the first four trumpets, John looks and he sees an eagle flying in the sky, an eagle that speaks, and it says, whoa, whoa, whoa. And it, it identifies three further judgments of God that are going to come upon the earth. And it speaks of, of even further, even more judgment that is to come. Now we get to chapter 9 as we, as we follow this kind of, this unraveling of mankind, if you want, this, of, of the trust of mankind upon themselves for their own salvation. We get to the, we get to, uh, the fifth trumpet and we have a terrible vision. Now if you remember when we got to the fifth seal, there was an interlude. There were, the, there were the four horses of the apocalypse, the four judgments of God that come down throughout the age between the, the first and the second coming of Jesus. But here we have, after the four trumpets, there's an interlude. Before, we got a vision of heaven. We got a vision of those saints praying to God, washed in their robes and in white robes and, and waving their palm branches. We got, John gave us an interlude after the four Seals. We got a vision of heaven. But after the four trumpets here in chapter 9, we get a vision of hell. We get a vision of, of the judgment of God. And we get a, a demonic kind of manifestation that comes through chapter 9, as you read it, of, uh, of the abyss. 
we read of the abyss and we read of sulfur and we read of smoke rising up and, and we read of these horrific kind of beings that are like locusts and like horses that have a sting in their tail like a scorpion. And it's a picture, if you like, of, of the demonic, of the satanic, of the oppression of humankind by these cosmic forces. What, what John is doing here in Revelation as he's talking to the church and he's writing to them and he's speaking to them about standing up for their faith and the gospel, he's speaking of this cosmic battle that's taking place. And he's saying there's two sides to this battle. There's the side of the lamb. There's the side of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And there's the side of the beast and the, size, and the side of the demonic and the dark, the dark forces. This is what Paul wrote about when he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he said, we're not fighting here with flesh and with blood, but we're fighting against principalities and powers and dark forces of evil. And there is this cosmic battle that John is, is showing the believers as he pulls back the curtains of heaven and he says this is the spiritual reality of, of what is going on. And there's this horrendous, as you read through chapter 9, this horrendous picture of, uh, of demonic forces coming forth. But this time, instead of, instead of those that are sealed being protected, the word comes to these demonic forces that it is only those that are not sealed that will be unprotected. They will be affected by these. So the command comes. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree in chapter 9 verse 4. But only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And during those days men will seek death but will not find it. They will long to die but death will elude them. There is a, a sense here of, of mankind despairing even of life itself. There's a picture of, of a kind of a satanic, demonic activity upon the earth in people's lives that it's like, a, it's like they come and they have the appearance of something almost beautiful. They are described as demonic forces having little crowns of gold on their head and they have faces like human beings and they have hair like a woman's hair and yet they have teeth like a lion's teeth. Again, it's strongly symbolic language, but it, it is something that appears human. It is something that appears beautiful. It is something that appears to have glory or something that appears to have power. But it's got a sting in its tail like a scorpion. And that is a picture, really, of the, the demonic activity in people's lives, of the unraveling of people's lives. It's a picture of addiction, is it not? The picture of something that appears beautiful, that appears appealing, that appears that will answer the problems of my life, that will give me something I'm looking for. It's, it's, it's the picture of sin and the things that look glorious and that look appealing and that look human and look attractive, but they have a sting in their tail like a scorpion or like these horses in, that are described in chapter 9 that have tails like a serpent and it is a picture, really, of humankind that has turned away from the protection of a loving God and that has followed its own ways. It is a picture of people that ultimately, when they get into these positions, end up almost wanting to die, wanting, having a death wish, a despairing of life itself. There's a desperation here in chapter 9. There's a darkness 
And all of these beings, John says, they are ruled over by one who is called Apollyon, the destroyer. Jesus came in John chapter 10, verse 10, and he said, there is one who is a thief, and he has come to steal, and he has come to kill, and he has come to destroy. But I have come, Jesus said, I've come to give people life. I've come to give people true life. But there is one who destroys life. There is one who offers incentives and trinkets and things that look beautiful and glorious and human. But actually, if you look in their mouth, they've got lion's teeth, these demonic forces. You listen to what they say and you see their effect on people's lives. And you can see people's lives unraveling as they trust in various human things and human sources and human strength. And underneath and undergirding all of this, as John looks in his vision, he says there is a spiritual reality in this world. There is a spiritual reality of darkness, of dark forces, of satanic forces. There is the spiritual reality of an evil being called Satan, who is called the destroyer, in Greek, Apollyon. And Jesus said, he has come to destroy, he's come to kill. And we see this horrendous picture And the command comes from heaven that you can only touch those who are not sealed, who have not got the seal of God upon them. What a tremendously sad picture of humankind. It's it's haunting. It's not easy to read. This cosmic vision that John is having of heaven and earth and of hell itself and of this rising up from the abyss of these demonic creatures And so we have the trumpets blowing. We have the first four trumpets which speak of of humanity depending on itself, depending on nature, depending on economic and political systems, which we can see even in our day and age, will not (laughs) suffice. They will let us down. They will be in turmoil cyclically again and again and again. And we see these judgments of God, but then we have this horrendous, horrible interlude and this view of, of a kind of a demonic, satanic reality. And we see people that are despairing even of life itself. People who are trapped in addiction. People who are trapped by the sinfulness of their own lives. And, and their lack of relationship with a living God. They do not have the seal of God upon them. They are not marked by the blood of the Lamb. They, they are not part of God's salvation. And the sad thing that we find at the end of this chapter, chapter 9... We read that, that, that a plague came and that a third of mankind was killed. And then we read in chapter 9, verse 20, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons. They did not stop worshipping idols. They did not repent, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, and their sexual immorality or their thefts. And there is something of a, of a hardness of heart here A hardness of the human heart. Even when the judgment of God comes in various forms. And whatever forms they take. And we we can argue over the symbolism. And we can argue over exactly how that pans out. But it is really a sense of the prayers of the saints rising to heaven. It is a sense of the judgment of God coming against mankind. As they turn away from the living God. And it it is a sense of this kind of undermining satanic demonic activity that is upon the earth. 
And Paul recognized this cosmic battle that was happening and these spiritual realities. And John recognizes them and he pulls back the curtain for these early churches and he says, this is what's happening in spiritual reality. This is what we're facing upon the earth. But the sad thing is that just like Pharaoh, when those plagues came, one plague after another plague after another plague against the kingdom of Egypt and against Egypt's force and against Egypt's strength and military might, The man of God, Moses, stumbled in, an 80-year-old man stumbled in from the desert and he brought Egypt under the hand of God to its complete and utter, to its knees as the judgment of God reigned. But the sad thing that we read when we look at that story in the Old Testament is that Pharaoh hardened his heart and he would not let God's people go. He would not repent. He would not change his ways. And we get to the end of chapter 9 and we get to the end of all of this that's going on. People despairing of life itself, the failure of humanity to rule itself, the turning away from a living God, the destruction of a destroyer, a satanic being. And we still read that the people that remained, they would not repent. So what is the church to do? How are we to respond? In a world that is in turmoil, a world that stands under the judgment of God, A world that is affected by satanic powers. A church that faces cultural norms that are completely antithesis to the gospel and to Christian truth. Well, we are to pray. We are to pray. We are to change our perspective. And we are to look up into heaven and to see the spiritual realities of what is really going on. And the cosmic battle that we are in, that Jesus told us would take place between his first and his second coming, we are to pray, we are to change our perspective, and we are to prophesy, we are to preach the gospel, we are to preach the gospel. We get to chapter 10, and John has another vision, and he sees an angel with a small scroll in his hand. And the angel straddles earth, <laughs> uh, the, the land and the sea. Uh, we come in the chapters yet to come, we come to the beast of the sea and the beast of the land. And, and, but the angel straddles all of that, stands in authority over it. And he holds a scroll in his hand, a small scroll this time. And, and John now starts to participate in the vision. And uh, he's told to go and take the scroll and eat it. It's reminiscent of the Old Testament and of Ezekiel and and take the scroll and eat it. Take this revelation of God, take this gospel of God. So John goes and he takes the scroll. He says in chapter 10, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion and then in verse 5 then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever who created the heavens and all that is in them the earth and all that is in it and the sea and all that is in it and he said there will be no more delay and then verse 8 then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel So I went to the angel and I asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. So I took the scroll. 
From the angel's hand and I ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. And then I was told, you must prophesy again about many people's nations, languages, and kings. So the word of God comes to John and he's told to take this revelation, this scroll, this gospel proclamation, and he's told to prophesy, told to eat it, to ingest it, and to preach it. And he said it was sweet. It was sweet to my taste, but it was sour in my stomach. There's something about the gospel of Jesus Christ that is so sweet to the taste. The Bible says in the Psalms, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's something so wonderful about the gospel, which means the good news of Jesus Christ. It is so sweet to the taste. It's like honey in our mouths, the Bible says. Jenny's grandparents, um, her grandma was called Bernie, and her grandpa was called George. And George was the grumpy old man, and Bernie was quite sweet, but she had a steel edge to her. And I met them for the first time, uh, and uh, I was quite a kind of intimidated by this matriarch of the family. And I sat in a restaurant with her, and, uh, and she was eating her food, and she would take it, and she would put it in her mouth, the fork, and she'd say, oh, this is so good, Jeff, you've got to taste it. You've got to taste it. And she didn't know that I'd have a slight hygiene issue and that I didn't necessarily <laughs> want to take the fork that had been in her mouth <laughs> and put it in my mouth. And she'd say, oh, Jeff, this is so good. You have to eat it. You have to eat it. It's so good. And so I was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> and uh, and she, so she was like, paddling her fries, whatever we were eating that meal, and she was like, eat it, taste it, see, it's so good. And I was like, oh, I don't want to eat it. Um, but don't we do that sometimes when, when, we, when we find something that tastes so good? It's, oh, you have to taste this. Oh, this is so good. I mean, if you've eaten Val's cakes, you just, oh, my goodness. This cheesecake is so good. You have to taste it. And, um, and we have that kind of that feeling sometimes when we taste something that is so good. We want to share it, don't we? We want to say, this tastes so good, you have to taste it. We're running an alpha course at the moment, and, and what we're doing is we are saying to people, as we introduce them to faith in Jesus Christ, we're saying, this tastes so good. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is why Jesus died on the cross. This is what he does to you in your life. This is how he will sort out those issues and those sin issues. And, and this, is, this is what it means to follow Christ. And, and we know, those of us who've tasted the sweetness of the gospel, we know how sweet it is to the taste. We know how that we want to share it with other people. We know those that are going out on the streets with street pastors or those that are sharing on the Alpha course or, or those that are going out and giving out tracts in the middle of town and saying, look, look, this is what we've tasted. This is taste and see that the Lord is good. And this is the gospel that we proclaim in this age and in this generation. And John took this scroll and he ate it and he said, it tasted so sweet. It was like honey, but it left a sour taste, like a, a bitterness in my stomach. And there is something of sharing the gospel that costs us, that has a heaviness to it, a responsibility to it. As we look at the culture around us, as we look at society that we live in, as we despair sometimes at the contrast between the laws that are being passed in our land and what the Bible says, 
What we despair sometimes at the disparity between what we know to be biblical truth and what is peddled as truth in this day and age. And there comes a cost sometimes to sharing the gospel. We face a level of opposition, a level of persecution across the world. For some people, there is a bitterness that is left. A bitterness in the stomach, a cost. This is what Paul was saying when he spoke of sharing the gospel. He said, we, we have this treasure, and it's, but it's in earthen vessels. And, and actually, we're dying every day to share the life of Christ. There's a cost to this gospel. There's a cost to sharing this gospel. And, and that's what John saw. Is he, is he, isn't it the same kind of feeling that you get when you read the story of Jonah? And God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, Jonah, and tell them the good news. And Jonah's like, I don't want to. I don't want to go. Because they'll repent, and I don't want them to repent. And it cost, it cost him a level of almost a bitterness, a, a cost of sharing the gospel, a, and Jesus said, you know, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to lay down your life. You're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to follow me. And, 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 and Jesus said, you, you know, they hated me. <laughs> they will hate you too. And sometimes there's a bitterness as we share that gospel of Jesus Christ. It is sweet to our taste, but it leaves sometimes a bitter stomach, a, a cost that is involved in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what John was reminding this people of, of this was John's experience, was it not? As he was on Patmos and he said at the start of this book of Revelation, he said, I was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. I'm in exile because of my testimony. I'm in exile because I've preached the word of God, John said. And it's costing us something as a church and it will cost us something to stand up and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ particularly when people harden their hearts and they don't want to hear it. And so we get to chapter 11 and we get to kind of the culmination of this section and we have another vision of John's as he's speaking of what is the church to do. They are to pray. They are to pray and we see at the start of this section, we see the prayers of the saints rising up like incense and we see them causing the judgment of God to come upon the earth. We are, we are to pray. We are, to, we are to persevere. We are, we are to persevere in our sharing of the faith. We are to prophesy and to share the gospel. And in this section, we see three, three threads. And, and in this section, we almost have to be like CSI, crime scene investigators. And we have to pick up these and say, there's a little thread here of Zechariah. And there's a little thread of... Um, Ezekiel, and here's a thread of Jeremiah. And as we read through uh, Revelation, there are so many references to the Old Testament and to Old Testament prophecies. And so he says at the start of chapter 11, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshippers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. John is told to go and measure the temple, which is also what happened in the Old Testament. And in Ezekiel, it was the same thing that happened. Go and measure the temple. What's happening here 
is Jesus is saying, what happens when you have deeds of a property? When you have deeds of a property, uh, your property is, is delineated. It's marked out. There are exact dimensions to your property. And they will be put on the deeds of your property. And that means that that property is your property. You own it. You live on it. It's yours. It's your house. It's your land. And, but it's marked out specifically, which is why sometimes you see in the news of neighbors arguing over a strip of five centimeters between their buildings. And they go to court and they spend hundreds of thousands and you think, what are you doing for the sake of five centimeters? But uh, this is my property. This is, this is where my, the, lines, uh, the lines stand. This is where the boundary lines are. And, and, and God says to John, he says, go and mark out my property. Go and measure the temple of God. And the Gentiles will rise up against the temple of God. And they will trample upon it for a period of time. They will oppose it. They will come against it. But this is my property. This is marked out by God. Go and mark out the temple, John. Go and mark the lines of it. Measure it out. And there is a sense of what Jesus said in Matthew 18 when he said, "Um, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. All of hell will not prevail against my church. And there is something of the protection of God. And we come against a number here, and I'm aware I'm whizzing over a lot of stuff here. But we come up against the number in in Revelation, uh, uh, 1,260 days, 1,260 days, or three three and a half years. Or 42 months, it's all the same. Or a time, times, and half a time, three and a half. And and it it marks a period of time that is a limited period of time of oppression, a limited time of affliction. And even between the times of the first coming and the second coming of Christ, there will be levels of persecution against the church. But just as those saints were marked with the blood of the Lamb, the church of Jesus Christ is delineated and marked and protected by God himself, marked out. And then John looks and he sees two witnesses. And he says, I will give power. It says in verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. And this is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. And these men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth and every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, men from every people and tribe and language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. A strange picture a strange image. We're looking here at the prophecy of the church, at the witness of the church. We've got three threads in this chapter. We've got verses 1 and 2 of John measuring out the temple, and then we've got the next verses 
which are uh, the two witnesses and their death and their resurrection. And then we have a final scene of the blowing of the seventh trumpet and the worship of heaven. What is going on? (laughs) Who are these two witnesses? What is being said here? Now again, as I said at the start of my sermon last week, there are various interpretations that are possible here. But what I think is happening here is, first of all, in Deuteronomy, it says that by two witnesses, legal truth is established. So I think that this is speaking universally of the church, of Jesus Christ. I think it's speaking of the church that prophesies and speaks in the power of Elijah and Moses and Jeremiah, all of whom there are echoes of that in this passage. It's the church throughout the ages that stands up and stands as a witness to Jesus Christ. Now we read here a reference to a lampstand, to to lampstands and to olive trees, which takes us back to, if we're doing our crime scene investigation, there's a thread here of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4. And the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah in chapter 4. As the people of God are coming out of exile and are trying to rebuild the temple and facing tremendous opposition, and Zechariah has a vision of a lampstand, of a seven-thronged lampstand, and two olive trees that are like old-time electricity. The olive trees feed the lampstand with constant olive oil. And and the oil is flowing down these channels into the lampstand. It's kind of a a first-time electricity setup. So there's the lampstand, and then there's the oil of the olive trees flowing into the lampstand. And then God says to Zechariah, as he faces all of this trouble and all of this post-exilic difficulty, he says about the leaders of the nation, Zerubbabel and Joshua, but he says, Zechariah, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And it will be spirit-empowered witness that the, church, uh, that the church brings. And so we have a picture of, of lampstands. And of course, the churches are called lampstands early on in Revelation. And we have the picture of the olive trees. And it takes the people back to Zechariah. And it takes us back to the sense of a church of Jesus Christ that is empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses to God in this age and in this generation and throughout all of history. And isn't this what Jesus said when he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses? This is the promise to the church of Jesus Christ. Now here represented by two, by two witnesses in the spirit of Elijah and Moses, but but witnesses that will stand up for the truth of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. But then comes this moment when the beast rises up out of the abyss and kills them, kills the witnesses. For three and a half days they lie dead in the street. What does that mean? Well, I think throughout the ages there have been times where people have said that the church is dead and the church is dying. I read a piece just this week by Martin Percy, the former dean of Christ Church Oxford, who said that the Church of England will be dead in about 40 years' time on current projections. They will be dead. There will be no more Church of England on current numbers and, uh, and trends. Is it not what was said of the Chinese church under communism? The church is dead. The church cannot survive as, as it went underground and communism said you will not meet in the name of Jesus Christ. 
And people said the church cannot survive. And in 1940, there was a commentary that said the church of Christ will be no more in China in so many years' time. And yet, has there not been a tremendous revival in China as the church rose up, apparently dead, but now alive and flourishing? Did the same not happen in Uganda? When they imprisoned people like Pastor Paul Kinatama, who's come here, they threw them in jail, the pastors of the church. They shut down the churches. They said, you will not worship Jesus Christ. And it looked as though the church was dead for a period of time. Did not the church of Uganda rise up? Did not revival spread out throughout the country? Did the same not happen in Korea? When the Korean church seemed to be dead and yet revival stoked throughout the land and and moved in power and anointing and the church of Jesus Christ rose up? Did it not happen in Nazi Germany when the confessing church stood and Dietrich Bonhoeffer was thrown in jail and he was killed for his faith in Jesus Christ? And did Nazism not say the church will not survive? And the Reich church came along and lined up and compromised like the Revelation churches with with Nazism? Did not the church of Jesus Christ survive even when it seemed to be dead? Is this not what Jesus was talking about when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it seems that the body of the church is lying dead in the streets and yet Jesus comes and calls them up and breathes life into them. Is that not Ezekiel chapter 37? Can these dry bones live, Ezekiel? Oh, Lord, only you know. And then he breathed his breath into them, and the bones stood up, and the church arose, and the people of God thrived. Is this not what happens when the breath of God comes and breathes into his church? And this is the picture we get as we come to uh, the two witnesses, as we come to the measuring of the temple, as we come uh, to, to chapter 11 of Revelation, we see a church that seems to be dead but is made alive in Jesus Christ. We see this imagery of Zechariah and the olive trees and the olive oil that is flowing and the truth of the fact that it's not by might and it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord of of hosts. We see the truth of what Jesus said when you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. And who are we following in all of this? Well, Jesus is introduced in Revelation chapter 1 as the faithful witness. He is the first. He is the firstborn from among the dead. He is the martyr in Greek, the martus. And then we come across Cleopas in Pergamon, the church in Pergamon, who had given his life for the faith. He was called a faithful witness. John is a faithful witness on the island of Patmos. And John is writing to these churches, and they're in three camps. There are those that are persecuted, there are those that are compromising, there are those that are complacent. And he pulls back the curtains of heaven, he says, this is the reality of the judgment of God. This is what's happening as we pray to God. This is what's happening as God's judgment comes upon the earth. This is what happens to those who trust in their own strength and in humanism and in human strength. There is also this demonic, satanic world that is going on. But I'm telling you, says John, as he sees these visions, as he eats this scroll, as he prophesies to the nations, as he sees these two witnesses that represent the church of Jesus Christ throughout the ages, spirit-empowered, living in the power of the Holy Spirit, witnessing, bearing witness to God, martyrs throughout the ages, he sees that ultimately they will prevail. And they will praise God. And the seventh trumpet is sounded. And the seventh angel sounds his trumpet. And... 
The words come forth, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the people worship, and the elders fall down and worship. What is the church to do in this day and age? Whether we look at the seven seals or the seven trumpets, whether we fully understand, and I don't think we do, the form that this judgment takes and the timelines, whether we fully understand every symbol and every, every meaning of every number, and every, I don't think we do. But I do think we get a sense of a world that has hardened its heart to the gospel, a world that, when it depends on itself, will unravel, a people that are tormented and tortured, it says here, by these demonic forces, by demonic untruths. We are to pray like these ancient saints. We are to get heavenly perspective and see what's really going on as we share this gospel. We are to prophesy. We are to speak the truth of God to culture. We are to speak the truth of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will be sweet on our lips, but there will be times where it's bitter to our stomach. And we are to persevere. We are to persevere this patient endurance of the saints. And there's a passage in Revelation 12 that we're coming to. And it says that they triumphed by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And that is how we overcome. That is how we stand as the church of Jesus Christ. We stand by the blood of the Lamb. We are marked by the blood of the Lamb. We are washed by the blood of the Lamb. And we stand by the word of our testimony, by the spreading of the gospel. As we close, as the band comes up, there's something going on in society at the moment. It's a phenomenon evidently in the workplace. And it's called quiet quitting. It's where people kind of give up. And they, they don't leave, but they just quietly quit. They just quietly give up. And the challenge to the church of Jesus Christ here, a church that was partially complacent, a church that was partially compliant, but a church that was facing conflict and persecution, and the challenge comes to the church that you must repent and you must, you must stand and, and bear witness to Jesus Christ. We don't want to be quiet quitters. We want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a world that needs it more than ever. And we can have the assurance that we will stand, that we are protected by the blood of the Lamb. We will share the word of our testimony and the church of Jesus Christ will prevail. You may look around you, you may be depressed by the newspapers and the news, but it's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. It's happened down through the ages. Let's pray that people's hearts are softened and they turn to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We're going to sing a couple of songs now in response that speak of this mandate of heaven for us to share our witness. And I pray that you too will know the power of the Holy Spirit on you to do exactly that. Father, we pray that we as the church of Jesus Christ, yeah, though we don't understand all of these images, and, and, and there are some very bold and strange images in Revelation that might mess with our modern minds, God. But the truth of spiritual reality behind the scenes is so evident to each one of us. I pray, God, that we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Thank you that you have sealed us, you have marked us as your own. I pray, God, that you will empower us by your Holy Spirit as you promised to, that we would speak the word of God with boldness.
and spread the amazing good news of Jesus Christ to a world that needs it more than ever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.